What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And before I introduce my brand new guest, the wonderful Jane Friedman, real quick, a little bit of housekeeping. So a few things. One of them, if you're not yet, make sure you head over to the Rewired Soul YouTube channel. I have been so, so, so far behind and I apologize, but I'm uploading as many episodes as possible over there. A lot of these uh, are recorded with video and I know some of you dig that. Um, I I personally listen or slash watch a lot of podcasts. Uh, I don't know. I prefer that experience. So, <laughs> so for those of you who are into that, uh, I have been uploading them to the Rewired Soul YouTube channel. So make sure you check that out. Go subscribe. I just uploaded my episode with Bridget Fetessy, uh, as well as the episode I did a while back with uh, Lara Bazelon. And that one's all about wrongful convictions, false confessions, and the justice system. So go check that out. Um, another thing, uh, just I'm just going to toss all this stuff in here right now, okay? So one of them, if you didn't know, a lot of these episodes, all of the episodes actually that are regular, not bonus episodes are uploaded early for everybody who subscribes over on Substack, paid subscribers, that is. There's a free option and a paid option. So if you support the podcast by signing up over on Substack, it's only $5 a month or 50 bucks for the year. You get all of the regular episodes a day early. I'm also uh, working on a new book, so you'll probably get a free uh, early copy of that. And uh, yeah, I'm working on some other perks and benefits and everything. So make sure you uh, subscribe over on Substack if you're interested in early episodes and want to support the podcast. And a free way to support the podcast is go leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. The algorithms love that. I love that. I love getting your feedback and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's it for the housekeeping stuff. Um, make sure you follow me on Instagram and Twitter because I love chatting with all of you. I've actually had a lot of DMs lately uh, because I've been writing a lot about the Joe Rogan <laughs> controversy and all that. And I've got a lot of DMs. It's, it's really interesting how many people don't want to talk about this stuff publicly like that's always really interesting to me uh but yeah i love chatting with all of you guys on instagram and twitter at the rewired soul is my handle all that stuff everything i just mentioned is linked down in the description below all right but anyways anyways let me introduce the wonderful jane friedman so speaking of writing speaking of authors uh yeah i'm a writer i have self-published multiple books and i love i love to learn a lot of you know that i read hundreds of books a year and no matter what it is I, I love learning about it. Not only do I love like learning about human nature, but I love uh, just learning about different views and opinions on like, uh, you know, being an entrepreneur and doing my own thing, right? So Jane Friedman wrote probably one of the best books I've ever read that is for authors and it's called The Business of Being a Writer, okay? Jane has been in the publishing industry for years and I have read so many books about being a writer, like, you know, uh, traditional publishing versus self-publishing, uh, you know, uh, the best ways to write a book, best ways to market a book, all these things. So even if you're not a writer, you'll probably enjoy this episode because you probably subscribe because you like to read. And it's cool kind of knowing like behind the curtain what's going on. But anyways, Jane covers everything just top to bottom in this book. And we've been trying to link up. Uh, she's such a busy woman. And she finally came on the podcast. So we discuss, uh, you know, traditional publishing versus self-publishing, marketing. I ask her some questions about, you know, market trends and, you know, why people love reading the same type of book over and over and over, uh, like on the same topic. Uh, the, the, the one I always reference is like Donald Trump. 
or social media is bad. There's just hundreds of those books and people keep buying them up and reading them. But um, in the aspect of marketing, Jane Friedman actually uh, wrote an opinion piece on her personal website about a New York Times article discussing how Billie Eilish, her sales flopped for her new book. And everybody was like wondering why, right? Billie Eilish is one of the you know biggest celebrities uh, in recent years and her book just absolutely flopped. And Jane has some interesting uh, opinions and views on that based on her personal experience. So we talk about, you know, what good marketing of a book actually looks like. So Jane is just so full of wisdom and knowledge. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode, even if you're not an author. If you are an author, make sure you head down in the description. Make sure you're following Jane. Grab a copy of her book. She is just just phenomenal. I can't, I can't express enough kind words, and I'm so glad we were able to chat, all right? But anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jane Friedman about her book, The Business of Being a Writer. All right. Hello, Jane. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Chris? I am fantastic. I've been wanting you on since I started this podcast, so I'm so glad we were able to link up. Wise. So I wanted to start out for those from my audience who have not yet been introduced to you and your work. Can you give us a little bit of your background and what you do and all that good stuff? I've worked in the publishing industry since the mid to late 1990s. I started on the traditional publishing side uh, in Cincinnati. I'm not from New York. I have, in fact, never worked in New York publishing. Some people get confused by that point since publishing is indeed so New York centric. Mm -hmm. Uh, Around 2014, I went full time freelance, but I'd been doing a lot of freelancing prior to that time. You know, I've had my own website and I've been blogging and doing email newsletters since roughly 2010. Mm -hmm. So when I did go full-time freelance, I was already pretty well situated to make that jump. So I've been a, you know, a a free spirit for gosh, about eight years now. Um, I'm based in Charlottesville, Virginia, as of today. And what I primarily focus on is educating writers about the business. Mm -hmm. So that takes the form of online classes, email newsletter, of course, my website and blog still continue. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I do it on a spectrum as far as like, I have a lot of information for beginners, but I also do a really advanced professional newsletter that talks about market trends and things that are of interest to more established and professional authors. Hmm. So with, with you having so many years of experience in the publishing, publishing industry, and you, you write about this quite often, but like, what are some of the major changes that you've seen, like even in the last 10 and 20 years, like obviously like the internet exploded early in 2000s and right. social media came and all that stuff. But is there anything like significantly different or is it like same candy, different rapper and people just kind of have to adjust a little bit? No, it's, it's radically different than when I began in the business. I would say you can lay a lot of that at the doorstep of Amazon, which is mm. probably not going to be a surprise to anyone listening. Amazon has changed 
a lot of industries, um, not just book publishing, but it did start by selling books. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was 96. Was it even earlier than that? In any event, when I started, people made fun of Amazon. They go, oh, what's this cute little internet thing? It'll never go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and of course, now it's responsible for the majority of all book sales in the U.S., whether print or digital. And that just changes a lot of things about how book publishing operates. Um, you know, it used to be that book publishing was a very gut-driven, taste-driven industry. There was a lot of like, who knows what sells a book? You know, sometimes things just hit. Mm -hmm. um, now, granted, there's still a lot of that that goes on, especially at some of the big houses. Um, they tend to think of themselves as um, merchants of culture. You know, there's mm. even a book with that title talking about book publishers who see themselves as merchants of culture. And there's a lot of like highfalutin talk about how they are critical to art and culture. And, um, and I'm not saying that it isn't true, but with Amazon, you get, you know, data-driven sales and marketing and mm -hmm. algorithmic discovery and all sorts of things that change the landscape of what people read, um, mm -hmm. how much they pay for what they read, what they expect out mm -hmm. of it. And I think it's also created, as a side note, an enormous self-publishing market where it's possible now for authors to succeed and reach their readers directly because of what Amazon has done. Mm -hmm. Um, so I won't get into the weeds there unless you want to later on, but it's, I mean, it was not a viable path for most yeah. people to self-publish when I entered the business. Yeah. Yeah. No, trust me. I, I definitely have questions where we're going to get all up in the weeds <laughs> in a little, in a little bit. Um, but, but yeah, like that's like one of the things I do want to touch on is like traditional versus self-publishing and how that's kind of shifted things and all that. Um, but Real quick, too, because I was introduced to you and your work and all the wisdom and advice that you put out there through your most recent book, The Business of Being an Author. So for any aspiring writers, like I have a lot of authors on here, but a lot of authors listen to the podcast as well. Can you kind of like describe what inspired that book? And there's so much packed into this book. Like, what were you trying to hopefully uh, achieve by writing that? I was very tired and disappointed by panel discussions, mm. particularly at uh, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, which granted is a very particular community. It's mainly people who come out of MFA programs, university creative writing programs, mm. professors, people who are studying writing in the hopes of making it big as a writer. And, you know, I attended that conference for 20 years and, you know, they have hundreds and hundreds of panel discussions and every single year it was the same thing i wish someone had told me how hard it would be <laughs> to earn any money or i wish i had known how little publishers pay uh before i went into eighty thousand dollars of mfa school loan mm -hmm. debt. <laughs> and it's just like how could you not know yeah um and i realized well you know there is indeed a taboo around talking about earnings money mm -hmm sales figures um and so that is the underlying motivation for that book yeah and and I, i'm curious too so me like i've been writing you know for a long time it's just something that came to me and i'm like oh okay i'm decent so i tried to improve everything but i didn't 
I went to a semester for co- of college and then dropped out and I've just been doing my own thing ever since and all that. But how important do you think it is, you know, to go through like an MFA program today as a writer, especially with some of the things that we've talked about with uh, the fact that you can self-publish with social media, being able to create your own brand and all that, like on a scale of one to 10, like how important is racking up student loan debt? Because there's a lot of people in all aspects of college where they go, like my girlfriend, for example, she's currently in her master's program for social work, which is like, you know, you're going to find something in that realm. But like when it comes to something creative, like writing or whatever it is, it's like, you know, I have a 13 year old son. So I'm always thinking, how much do I want to push him towards college when, you know, the success isn't really guaranteed? You know what I mean? Right. Well, let's be clear. You do not need a degree to have a successful writing career. And in some cases, I think the degree can get in the way. Of having a successful writing career. I mean, some of these MFA programs have a lot of mythologies. I don't mean that in the negative sense of the word, but mythologies about what a real writer is, which is they don't get involved in the dirty business aspect. You know, they don't sell out, you know, to the man, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this happens in all of the arts. It's not limited to writing. Um, Now, if you feel like you need a degree or you want a degree, then maybe you should get a degree, but just recognize that you're very unlikely to see that investment come back to you quickly. Um, And it just rarely has an effect on getting published. Um, Now, if you are a very literary writer, and by literary, I mean you're writing short stories and poetry, things that appear in literary journals, things that the mass market frankly, has little interest in, you know, there is a lot of cachet wrapped up in having certain types of degrees or having certain types of mentors or professors. So if you're interested in entering this literary world, this world of prestige, well, you know, I can understand wanting to play that game, but recognize that it is fundamentally a game that you are engaging in um, and you are you are going to get graded on metrics that are very different from how New York publishing looks at it. There's even kind of a book about this. It's called MFA versus NYC. Um, This came out, gosh, probably seven or eight years ago. It's a collection of essays about about these kind of two dynamics in the writing and publishing world. So if anyone's interested in that tension, I would suggest that book. I just just wrote it down. I love, I love me to books. And yeah, it's it's really interesting, too, because I've had, you know, a lot of authors on here, uh, like Brian Kaplan, who wrote a book like The Case Against Education. And I talk a lot about how, like, a lot of education, there's like this signaling aspect, right? So if you want to be a yes. Wall Street banker, it makes sense, right? I went to this school, I got this right. degree. But, you know, like last year, for example, I read like 380-something books. And never did I, like, look at a book and say, oh, well, this author has an MFA. I'm going to grab a copy of it. It seems like this is like one one of those industries where your degree isn't really signaling anything of importance, you know? And, you know, that kind of transitions into uh, the topic that made me reach out and say, hey, you want to come on? And it's uh, the New York Times published a piece about uh, Billie Eilish's book and not reaching the sales that you would assume it would reach. Mm-hmm. Can you Can you kind of break down what, uh, some of the main takeaways from that 
New York Times piece, and then we'll kind of like break it down and dive into mm-hmm. some specific aspects of that. The piece is highly problematic on a number <laughs> of levels. And I, you know, I'm sure you read my response to it at my site and, and your listeners can go take a look. I'll, I'll kind of recap some of the issues. Um, first of all, this article was looking at c- celebrity books for the most part, books by people with who are in the public eye, who therefore have large followings because they're in the public eye on social media. And they may or may not be interested in writing and publishing a book, but someone's using the market opportunity and, you know, they're doing it for the money, not because they want some sort of writing and publishing career. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to kind of understand the sort of book this article focuses on uh, in order to make its argument that social media doesn't sell books. Well, I mean, these actually, you know, the copies sold if if it were someone without celebrity, those sales numbers would actually look really, really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. just the fact that they have these, you know, celebrity followings that the expectations were higher. Now, why did the publisher think there would be more than what they got? Um, maybe they thought the celebrity author was going to do more to support their book. And I find that sometimes they will support it. Sometimes they won't. Um, mm-hmm. Like, so let's compare to another celebrity that I think actually did support uh there i think will smith had also recently had a book come out mm-hmm. as, i mean i didn't follow this book closely but i definitely saw the social media activity surrounding that and it looked like he was pretty engaged in supporting the book's release uh the obamas oh yeah they really supported their own memoir releases i mean and you would think oh who if there's anyone who can skip book marketing it's the obamas right but no they were really engaged in doing events around the release and engaging with bookstores and and the whole nine yards. So what I'm saying here is that any book, regardless of who the author is, it needs to be marketed. And Mm -hmm. if that article that the New York Times published almost made it seem like, and I don't know if this is true, that publishers were just kind of sitting and waiting for the sales to roll in because the social numbers looked good. And that's, that's ridiculous. And no, no smart marketer expects that to happen. Yeah. Um, they know that it takes work and support. Um, and, you know, it's not as simple as forcing or mandating the celebrity to post a certain amount of times. I mean, a meaningful campaign is months in the making. It requires a lot of assets. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's, it can't, it can't just be about a tweet a day and you're done. It's, yeah. That's not going to cut it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's actually, uh, kind of interesting Well, the first book that I self-published, I, I wanted to write my story of, uh, my addiction and getting sober and all that. And, you know, to get it out there and help people. And I did it kind of like the opposite way. Like nobody knew me and I wrote this book and I just sat there. I'm like, okay, well, how is anybody going to know about it? Right. And that's when I went and started building my social media brand that I blew up on YouTube and all these other things, but kind of like what you're saying, like, I realized that there was more than just having a following or just having a book. There's things that have to kind of work together and you got to build hype. And we'll talk about that in a minute and all that. But, um, you know, I'm curious if you've noticed this because I'm mainly an audio listener. Uh, and you mentioned like, you know, Will Smith's book, the Obamas and everything. Have you noticed? I've noticed this and maybe I'm just crazy. It seems like Audible, they promote the hell out of like celebrity books. Like, like audible, like not the publisher, like audible takes the reins and they push it like 
on my app, when I go to the Audible website, it's like Will Smith's book's coming out, Will Smith's book's coming out. And it's just in my face. And it doesn't seem like anybody aside from Audible is doing that marketing. Is that something that you've noticed? Or do you have any like behind the scenes, like information about that? Or <laughs> is it just like something random? Well, I, I'm not a audiobook listener, mm. so I'm not seeing the same promotions you are. However, there is um, something very particular that might be driving that. Um, one is that audiobook sales are very profitable for everybody involved, especially on Audible, which is, which is where you, you basically are paying full price for these new releases and, and bestsellers. It's not, in other words, it's not, even though it's billed as a subscription model, it's not really a true subscription model. It's not a all you can eat for yeah. one price. It's your one credit per month. And people want that credit to mean something and they want to get the highest value out of that credit. Oh, yeah. So they're going to go straight for what seems like the biggest book or the one least likely to let them down. There's very little risk taking. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I think that's part of the reason why you see promotion of these blockbusters. And certainly, the, you know, there's all sorts of merchandising and, and what we call co-op dollars that go into promoting titles on Audible that I'm sure the publishers are paying for. Mm. Um, but audiobooks are also just very profitable, generally speaking, especially when you compare it to, uh, you know, even print. So that's, it's a, it's been a growing sector for publishers. They are very happy about audiobook sales. They've eclipsed ebook sales. And that's another matter of why that's happened. But yeah, I think part of it is it's, it's just, it's the money that you're seeing. It's, they earn money. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it is like, you, you explain that perfectly. Like on, on audible, for example, like, oh, look, and some of these books would be like $25, $30, especially right. like the longer ones, but right. you get one credit and you can get whatever. Like right. I was going broke with Audible and now that I'm interviewing authors, I get review copies sent. So I'm like, thank God, you know, because <laughs> right. it was, it was so much because then they do this like thing where you can buy like three credits for like 30 something dollars. Mm-hmm. So it, it averages about $11 per book. And, right. and yeah, then I'm thinking of, you know, like the, the profit margin on that, but, but yeah, yeah. that, that definitely makes sense. Um, but with, with publishers, uh, going back to like publishers working with celebrities, um, with me coming from the YouTube world, this is where I first saw this, like a lot of YouTubers where kind of like you mentioned, like they don't have an interest in like, you know, it wasn't on their bucket list to be a published author. Right. And they'll just release something that's just garbage. And the most, the most promotion they get is actually from people on YouTube making fun of their books. So they more people hear about their books, which is just this whole toxic environment. But anyways, um, when it comes to publishers working with celebrities, uh, I, I've been thinking about a lot lately. I had Duncan Watts on recently and he kind of like analyzes, you know, uh, you know, people predicting what's going to be a hit and what's not. And I think about that with like publishers. Do you think like, you know, they obviously assumed like Billie Eilish she could sell millions of copies, even without her social media following, she could just mention it like in an interview or whatever. Do you think publishers have gotten better? Like you talked, you talked about them being like, kind of like these like tastemakers and stuff like that. Do you think they've gotten better or worse at predicting what will or won't be a hit, <laughs> like when it gets released or do they, are they just like flying blind, like many other experts? I think what might shock the average person is 
how little market research publishers do, like little to none. When you compare what publishers spend on marketing to other consumer goods like Coke or, you know, clothing or just pick an industry, it really doesn't matter. Publishers spend a minuscule amount on market research. Um, and a lot of it just really comes down to comp title research, which is where publishers will look at comparable books, either from their own house or from competing houses and say, well, it sold this much during this amount of time at this price point. And so, you know, that's how they run most of their estimates. Um, so that's why, you know, sometimes you find publishers really risk averse and unwilling to take on something that doesn't have comps that help them feel comfortable about what the expectations will be. Publishers don't run typically like focus groups or consumer surveys. They don't engage with readers directly. And part of this has a long history um, of them just selling to booksellers or, or, or librarians yeah. or people who, you know, it's, it's the middlemen who have been in direct contact with readers. Now, of course, this is changing because internet um, and publishers are getting more data than they've ever gotten before about what readers want because now they have email marketing and they've got social media. However, it is really hard for them to, I would say, pay attention to the data um, or follow the data because it's just, it goes against a lot of the culture of publishing, which is we know, we, we are the yeah. tastemakers. We, this is what we think has value. And then we're going to try and sell it to the best of our ability. There are some notable houses and imprints out there that do this market research. And sometimes, you know, they do it to such an extent that it does get a little like you kind of recoil at how capitalistic it seems. <laughs> so like, <laughs> um, like Callisto Media is sometimes referenced for, you know, they don't even pay authors royalties. Like they, mm. they pay flat fees and take all rights. And so you do have like book packs. Sometimes these are called book packagers that are really just following the market. And most writers, when they see that activity, they actually feel a little bit like, ooh, that's a little dirty. It's a little bit too too much yeah. publishing by the numbers like there, part of us does want that artistry and that mystery surrounding you know uh, the publishing of a book it's nice to bring together both like you want both i think you yeah. want both to come together yeah so you know this this brings me to another question that i have and and just as an avid reader right and i read all sorts of different books but i feel like you're the perfect person to ask this okay so when we're talking about like uh comparable books and everything like that and like what's doing well or performing well like i've read some books from like uh you know self-publishing authors and you know one of the books was like you know right to market like so if you see a genre mm -hmm. kind of pop and it's like go out bust out a book self-publish people are searching on it and amazon but anyways why do you think it is that books so many books on the exact same topic perform so well like Two great examples off the top of my head. During the Trump years, especially, like you walk into a bookstore, right? There's just, there's just shelves of Trump books, just a hundred different people all writing a book about Trump. All of them say the same things, but they're selling. Another one is social media is bad for you, right? So like any book saying like, hey, Facebook's bad. Hey, Twitter's bad. Those things, they just sell. What do you think this is about consumers like the reader 
where they keep reading books on the same exact topic. Because I feel like, you know, if you're an author, that makes it difficult because you, one of the, one of the aspects of like, uh, uh, pitching a publisher is, Hey, I have something unique, something different. I'm taking a different angle, but then they publish like a hundred books on the same topic. You know what I mean? So that's where it seems like really confusing. Like those two things don't seem to make sense. So what's your take on that, Jane? Well, there, there are a few things to look at here. I mean, you were bringing up nonfiction examples primarily, mm -hmm. and you have to talk about fiction and nonfiction a little differently, but there, there's something to notice here, which is when people read fiction, like they read cozy mysteries, they mm -hmm. want more of the same, you know, and you, 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 you just go deep into the category that you love. Um, this happens across all sorts of storytelling and entertainment. We, we want more of that comfort. Um, we want the same experience repeated. It's not actually, it's, it's, I think it's less common to find someone who's very diverse and eclectic in what they're willing to read. We tend to go back to the same places again and again. Mm -hmm. With nonfiction, you know, there are definitely fashionable topics that come up and where everyone is talking about a certain issue. Trump is obviously one of the big ones of the last, what, six years, I guess, seven yeah. years. Um, and so every, you know, there's a huge market. And even if I don't know that everyone is buying exactly the same books, but my mom, for example, purchased at least four or five of those books. Some of them she decided not to purchase for various reasons, but there, you know, she was definitely one of the key markets for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, she would just devour them. She's also an avid cable news consumer. Mm. So, you know, it's. They, the authors of those books, if they're on a particular circuit, whether it's radio, cable news, whatever, you know, they can sell to their own audiences and they can reliably get a certain, meet a certain sales threshold because of who they are and the platform that they have. Um, but eventually, you know, the gravy train does come to an end. Like right now, it's really hard to sell a Trump book. You would have to have something really dramatically new and fresh to say. Mm -hmm. Now, if he ends up running again, you're going to see that whole cycle repeat um, yeah. for better or worse. Um, but to sell it, like you would not be able to sell a Trump book today analyzing the 2016 election. It's just to, it's ancient history at this point. No one cares. Everyone's looking at, you know, the next one and what's going to mm -hmm. happen there. Um, and then you've got January 6th to contend with. And now the books about that are starting to come out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. There are also other, like, it, the other thing to take into consideration is in nonfiction specifically, even though there are shelves dedicated to a topic that may seem really niche and how can you possibly keep publishing in this category, let's take gluten-free cooking as an example, mm. which I think is still, you know, I don't know if you would call it trending, but definitely there are a lot of people who are gluten-free yeah. right now and there are a lot of, there's a lot of demand for information on that topic. If you look at the books on the shelf, they are directed at very different types of people. Mm. So you can have a really cheap cookbook that's stuffed with hundreds of recipes, no color photography. That's for like a busy mom who just wants to put something in the slow cooker and forget it. Then you've got like the high end, you know, Brooklyn, whatever, the person mm. with the high end kitchen who makes six figures a year. And it's, it's a lifestyle choice. Um, and there's, and you know, the book is a $35 hardcover. 
And then you've got books for people who are gluten-free and they're angry about it. You know, they have to do it for health reasons. And so you get the humorous book from the person who also hates being gluten-free, but here's how you can cope. So there are lots of different angles, you know, there are lots of different little markets, even on the same shelf. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, especially what you're saying about the differences between fiction and nonfiction. Like a lot of people are surprised when I tell them how much I read and I read like virtually no fiction books. I've read like two fiction books out of the last hundreds of books I've read. Um, but, uh, you know, my fiction, I get it from TV and movies mm -hmm. and stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I am draw uh, drawn to like the same genres and stuff. And, you know, uh, me being a psychology nerd, I have a theory about, you know, the nonfiction aspect of people reading the same books over and over is this, it's kind of feeding this confirmation bias, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this, mm -hmm. oh, I am right. Look how many people are writing about right. this and this, these books are huge and all that. But so here's, here's another question I have for, for like authors, right? And here's where I get, it's something I've been working on since writing more and freelancing a little bit more and I'm trying not to get offended by it, but anyways. Like when you pitch to like a publisher, or even if you're pitching a freelance piece, they're always looking for something different, right? They're looking for something different. I, I've pitched a couple book ideas and, you know, I do want to ask you about the difference between working with a publisher and self-publishing, but they're like, hey, we already have a bunch of books like this, right? And I'm like, yeah, and you keep publishing them. You know what I mean? So if you're an author who feels like you have a unique take on a topic, whether it's political or, you know, uh, uh, some aspect of like, uh, you know, social issues or whatever. And a publisher's like, oh, well, we already have a bunch of books on this, but still they, they manage to squeeze through depending on who you are, maybe your own credibility and all that. So what should an author do? And, he, and even, you know, with freelance pitching, because sometimes I'm pitching out to different publications, they're like, well, we already have a bunch of articles on that. And I'm like, you keep publishing them though. So why not? <laughs> so like, how do you work with that? Right. Um, yeah, this is, this is always like trying to find that sweet spot of something that's popular, but doesn't feel like it's already been said or done a million times before. I think that there's, well, let me start with uh, a really good article. I'll point people toward, and Chris, you may have seen me mention this article that comes up pretty frequently when I write about nonfiction pitching. Um, it's by Eric Nelson. He's an editor at HarperCollins Broadside, which does a lot of political books, by the way. And he talks about great ideas as being like switches. I think the title of the piece is the secret, something like the secret to selling publishers on your ideas or what will the secret to getting editors and agents excited about your book idea. But remember it is the switch. That's the big metaphor in the piece. And he talks about how you know, if let's say you're going to talk about climate change in your book, everyone's coming out with climate change books right now and articles. You know, it's hard to read a publication without something about climate change in it at the moment. It may, might stay that way for a long time to come. Um, but it's really easy to write and publish a piece that doesn't bring anything new to the table. It's just simply your armchair reflections or observations, um, meaning you don't have any new research which means you need to bring a really novel argument or 
um, you need to have a platform or you need to have a voice that people really respect or find interesting, which takes time to develop. Like if you're unknown, that's just going to make you less compelling to the people who are acquiring this material. Who are you like, why do we care what you have to say if it's just an ar armchair observation? Yeah. So that's where the big switch comes in. The way to make your idea compelling is to stop with the nuance. Apologies to people who appreciate nuance like yep. I do. <laughs> um, and think about what's the big thing, the big variable that controls a lot of the issue that you're talking about, and you're going to flip the switch on it. So let's say you really care about climate change and you're talking about the nuances of what should happen politically or in the government, and it starts to get kind of boring. And it's like, well, everyone knows that a lot needs to change politically and in the government. But what if you said, we need to have a department of climate change established and it's going to get a budget of $3 trillion. Um, now you're putting forth an argument, like you're, you're risking something and mm -hmm. you're explaining why this dramatic, ambitious move is deserved. Um, so that catches attention. It generates controversy and discussion and people start to read you know, issue rebuttals and talk about how stupid that is, but you've mm -hmm. started the conversation and you've garnered attention. Yeah. So that's essentially what Eric Nelson is talking about in his excellent piece. Um, and I think, you know, that that explains a lot of what drives publishers to pick up books by people who might not yet have the platform. Mm -hmm. uh, you still need some sort of credibility or authority, like yeah. you need to not necessarily have degrees, but you need some sort of experience or something that would help people say, well, this, this person knows what they're talking about on some yeah. level. Yeah. I, I, I've been really interested in books on like why we listen to who we listen to and kind of like the psychology behind that and stuff. And, you know, credibility is a big one of those. And something I've personally noticed, especially this week, I've written, uh, I've been publishing more on Substack. Like I was doing medium and my own website and there's so many different places and stuff, but I've noticed some traction building with Substack and that's been helping me build a little bit of that credibility, which I then can use when talking with some uh, publications and all that. But I'm curious, like what advice you kind of give to, you know, authors that you're teaching and, and stuff, because when we're talking about this, like this big idea or lacking nuance, it feels like that, that kind of sellout idea comes to, right? Like, oh, I gotta do some really like hacky thing take this polarized position to get conversation going and then you know somebody like me i have authors on here all the time talking about the polarization in this country right and how we solve it and then it's like wait do i have to be part of the problem just to get heard and get my voice out there you know so it seems like there's these like internal ethical conflicts that a lot of us have so What's your advice to authors who might be struggling with that aspect of mm -hmm. it? Well, on a, on a book project level, I think that, especially if it's what we would call a big idea book, it's really hard to get away from this dynamic that I discussed. You have to have an argument that turns something on its head or has something new or interesting to say, or you need research. You know, there has to be an angle or a unique selling position. If we're talking about articles, substacks, things of this nature, short pieces or continuing or like building up a body of work, th there's a lot more room to maneuver, I think. 
you can start drilling down into niches and you can become the master of a niche you're, because you're the person who's the only one obsessed about this particular thing and you're deconstructing it in all of its iterations. And every time there's a little new story or a little piece of information, you're deconstructing it for everyone. Um, you can see this at work and like uh, there's a historian who has what the most popular Substack ever. Uh, I, I, Heather, I can't think of her last name. But, you know, she, you know, right now what she's doing probably isn't novel, but at the time she started, it, it probably was where she's applying the historian's take to very specific types of political events um, and just doing the deep dive on that. What if you were a religious scholar who decided you were going to start a substack that looked at the biblical allusions in political speeches by Republicans? Mm. There's probably no one else doing that. So you then become known for this really quirky thing that actually has a greater, bigger message about the world that's enlightening and that never occurred to people because they don't have that religious uh, background or experience, you know, but now their eyes are opened about all the biblical illusions that are popping out of Republicans' mouths and speaking to a very specific audience um, that here are the coded messages. Mm. Um, so the niche angle helps figuring out what it is you're going to drill down and obsess over. You can also act as a curator, someone who is gathering everything that's being written and published about a particular area and, you know, organizing it, making sense of it, commenting, priority, um, like grading. So being a critic in other mm. words. So there are also those angles that you can take. So those are like some ways to wedge yourself into places where it may, it might feel like it, you don't want to be polarizing, but you do want to offer thoughtful framing or, um, something that other people are simply missing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, uh, Going back to, you know, the marketing aspect, uh, something I've, I've learned, especially doing this podcast, uh, I've had, you know, like 130 offers on here so far, and, you know, we talked before and after, and with some of my background in marketing, something I'm, I'm learning is that a lot of authors are kind of surprised that the publishers aren't doing as much marketing as they thought, right? And it seems like, I believe you talked about this in your book as well, where you have to be a little bit like pub publications kind of spend more time on some of the bigger authors or ones they think are really going to be a hit and all that. So whether, you know, someone's working, uh, you know, they just wrote a book or their own, you know, they're just writing substack pieces or whatever it is, how, how much time do you think, you know, in this world of just, you know, social media moving at such a fast pace and all this, how much time do you think has to be spent or even like percentage wise between writing and then trying to market what you're writing to get your name out there and your work and all that? Because I, it feels like a lot of authors don't really understand that aspect of it. They don't understand it. And, and also too often marketing gets equated to tweeting or, you know, some sort of social media activity that's not particularly meaningful. Um, or it's too self-promotional to, to be useful or to move copies or so the good news is that a lot of marketing that's effective today is about creating content, about writing and publishing more work. So, you know, 
years and years ago, I used to really hit heavy on the message of content marketing, content marketing to help sell whatever it is you want to sell. It could be a book, class, a service, whatever. Content marketing can take myriad forms. It can be articles or blog posts published at your own site. It can be Substack. It can be podcasts. It can be videos. It can be a, a Twitter thread, uh, an Instagram live, a white paper, a webinar, like sky is the limit. And I think writers can understand this form of marketing or warm up to it better because it it's about creating something. And usually it's about serving an audience with more or something very akin to what's in the book. I think people get into this scarcity mentality when they're marketing, like they can't give too much away from the book or they can't yeah. put out excerpts or, you know, they can't, uh, whatever it is. If I, if I do too much, people will just take what, what they can get for free and they won't buy the book. But it's the opposite that's true. The more generous you are, the more that you display your expertise and help and serve people, the more people are going to buy and recommend your books. So yeah. I think people need to let go of this idea that they have to hold tight to everything and just make people, push people towards the purchase. Yeah. Especially if you're trying to get new readers, you have to start, you have to build visibility and trust, get attention through something that's valuable before you then push for the sale. Um, but to go back to your original question, I mean, as far as percentages and time commitments, I mean, it's all over the map. Um, but I would say when you've got a book, like during the launch window, which is like at least three to six months prior and then three to six months after, you know, you're probably going to be fully devoted to the marketing and that might involve writing things for publication, but it's still like a m marketing activity. So I would say a hundred percent, you should be focused on marketing rather than some writing other, some other book you need to yeah. pause and adequately support what you've created yeah it, it's been really interesting like i i don't know why i i just always love marketing and just trying to it's like a it's like a puzzle we solve like how do i get this in front of the right people and with all the authors that i talk to and have on the podcast i definitely see this like division there are some who are just killing it it's like they're natural marketers themselves i see them i uh I, I'll, I'll see them even just like retweet and article or news story and then talk about how it relates to topics in their books and like you said there's a lot of people who want to hold it really close to the chest and not give things away and you know even when i have authors on here and talk to them for an hour sometimes i do longer episodes and and we barely scratch the surface of what's in that book you know what i mean and something i loved about uh, i just reread your uh piece on your website about the billy english when you talked about this uh kind of drip feed right mm -hmm. and you know, I, I, I wish more authors kind of knew about like social media scheduling tools and just mm -hmm. matching it. Right. And doing these little like quotes from the book or little topics. Um, one of my last, uh, books that I self-published, I did that for a month or two, as I was writing it, I did these little teasers and it built up like a lot of buzz within the YouTube community. Cause it was kind of about, uh, YouTube and cancel culture and all that. And I saw that was really successful because, you know, it kind of made people curious, like, oh, what's he going to be talking about? But, you know, uh, I, I wanted to ask you too, like, it seems like some authors just don't even touch the marketing aspect, right? So I reach out to a ton of authors. I'm like, hey, want to come on the podcast, especially if they have a book coming out. I've noticed that's the sweet spot. A lot of people will be like, Chris, how'd you get such big authors? I'm like, hey, when they have a book coming out, that's the talk when you strike. But I've noticed 
that there's some authors where they're not, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, well, they just must be too busy. But then I'm keeping an eye on them. They're not doing podcast interviews. They're not writing. They tweet about it like once or twice. And I have a weird theory about it. And you can tell me if I'm nuts. But like, I'm almost, I'm almost like, with the lack of marketing you're doing, like, was this a ghost-written book where you have, like, no attachment to this book around for Forbes? But do you see anybody, like, doing that lack of marketing and it being successful just for some weird reason or anything? Like, I just, I can't understand. Because writing a book takes so long, Jay. It takes so long and so much effort. How could you not do any marketing behind it? Yeah, I mean, it's rare that I would see an author who just kind of stumbles onto bestsellerdom or a successful <laughs> book without doing yeah. anything. Um, I mean, there there is this kind of mythic story about uh, the author of The Martian. I'm blanking yeah. on his name at the moment. Um, but the myth of, his, of that book goes that he wrote it kind of on his website, which was really unwieldy for his colleagues to read. And someone kind of pushed him or even maybe for him, got it on Kindle. And I don't know if they started giving it away for free or anyway, it got onto Kindle and then it spread from there. And then he basically did nothing to market and promote. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's just the story that gets passed around. Yeah. Um, but there was so, like, I'm not going to say there was like a marketing intention or a marketing campaign there, but there was something that we call word of mouth. So at the very least, you know, his colleagues who seemed to have some influence uh, were reading it and passing it along to their colleagues. And if you have something that's really compelling, like it's just, it hits everything exactly right. It's the right time, the right moment for the story. The quality is there. Um, sometimes these things do spread on their own. Uh, another example just recently would be like, Wordle, <laughs> like if you like yeah. word games, <laughs> yeah. um, if you like spelling bee at the New York Times, there's there's this word game called Wordle that some guy just developed and he only shared it with a small circle of friends, but everyone freaking loves this game. Yeah. And so you can't stop people from sharing something they love. Now that, but you know, as I say in my book, quality doesn't just magically, you know, get in front of people. It often has to be pushed there yeah but there are some things that seem to defy gravity so but i wouldn't rely on that happening for you yeah for sure yeah ab absolutely <laughs> it is interesting and i think that transitions into this uh last topic i want i i had to ask you about uh in this podcast episode and it's about traditional versus self-publishing all right so for example using myself as an example i'm working on my next book Right. And, and like, I think like a bucket list for me is just like, work with a publisher, right? Just something to do. Cause all of my, I've written like five books that I've self-published and all that, but I, I cannot, I cannot, like I'm always doing like risk analysis and cost benefit analysis. I cannot figure out a way to justify all of that headache of working with a publisher. Like it sounds like it's, it seems completely irrational to me. like getting an agent. Right. Like finding an agent, like it seems to me, let's start with the agent aspect. It seems to me like that's just an industry standard and maybe I'm completely wrong and you can educate me on this, but I'm like, wait, like I do all of my own outreach for this podcast. You know, I reach out to publishers. I reach out to, you know, PR people. I reach out to authors. I reach out to everybody. So I'm like, 
why would I, why would I get an agent who's going to pitch that out to publishers? Is it just because they have connections? Is this just an industry standard type deal? You know what I mean? Like, are there people who bypass the agent part and just pitch to publishers? Like, is that a possibility? Because it, it just seems wild to me that I could do the work, but I'm going to hire somebody, let them get a cut for something I could have done. Does that make sense? It does. I, the two things that become sticking points if you don't want an agent are one, most of the biggest houses, the New York houses, they only look at work if it comes through an agent. I mean, yeah, you'll find the occasional exception, but it's pretty rare. And if you haven't published a book yet, it's really hard to get that to work out. Um, yeah. So part, partly the industry has decided we're putting up this wall and only agents can, yeah. can pass through it. However, there are many publishers that accept submissions direct from agents um, or from authors, rather. You know, small, mid-sized publishers are often happy to accept things directly. So it's, part of it's what do you want? Are you happy going to a smaller press without an agent? Um, the other thing with agents, aside from just the wall that's been put up that only they can walk through, I would, I would use the metaphor of having a real estate agent, especially mm. let's say you're moving to a new city and you need help deciding what neighborhood, what sort of offer to make, is this house worth the, what's being asked? Um, it's really hard to know that when you're an outsider to the community or if you don't have the years of experience of seeing what's sold and at what price. So agents can look at a, at a property, at a literary property yeah. and say, I know what this is. I know who's going to want it. I understand the sort of value it has. I know whether it needs to be put up for auction or I know this editor is probably going to do a preempt, which means they're going to offer a lot of money to ensure that no one else sees it and they get to buy it first. Yeah. Um, so agents have that market knowledge that it's pretty rare for authors to have at least the first time out. Now, once you have established relationships with editors or with certain publishing houses, I think it's more feasible for authors who are business oriented or business minded to undertake that. Um, it can also make a difference if you're writing in such a very particular niche where there's probably only two editors who are ever going to be interested and you already know them. Uh, so like a writing reference book, for example. So I used to work for Writer's Digest and we published 30, 40, 50 books a year. And, you know, there aren't really any other games in town if you want to write and publish a writing reference book. Um, and so many authors came to us directly and there was already a relationship there. They didn't need an agent to approach us. And why, why would you have an agent for that? So I, I would say those are the considerations. It's, I, whether agents earn their 15%, it's going to depend on the agent uh, for yeah. better or worse. But they also do a lot of other functions that I find helpful. Like they run interference. They know what's normal for the publishing process. Yeah. They can step in and advocate for you. Bad cop, good cop sort of situation. Yeah. The really great ones are career managers. So they're helping you decide what's next. Should you divorce this publisher? Is it time to move on? And, you know, it's just nice to have someone with experience to, to be a sounding board and an advocate. But is it necessary? Not for every author, but I find that, you know, some authors need that person there, if only to act as a therapist 
uh, for the anxiety <laughs> that tends to be inherent in the publishing process. Yeah. And you know, and you know what, Jay, with as much as I thought about this, you just, you just nailed it. I think with that real estate agent analogy, that, <laughs> that something clicked for me. Uh, but yeah, well, that makes sense because, you know, when I think about it, I think about contracts and pricing and stuff. I'm like, do I, would I need to hire a lawyer to look at this, mm -hmm. but an agent would kind of know the industry norms and things. And I like, right. they could like, you know, argue on your behalf and work out deals. So that makes a little bit of sense. But now, <laughs> now the question is, uh, you know, working with a publisher at all, right? Because as we started out this conversation, Amazon changed the game, right? Like I, I don't, uh, it, it's interesting to me. I don't think people realize like you could, you could do just a book. You could just write a book, put it on Kindle. It goes through, like they do some quality checks, but it is mm -hmm. quick and mm -hmm. you can set up an account. You start getting money. Amazon doesn't even take that big of a percentage, right? Like I think, right. what is it like 3%, like something very small. And like, you can like change it based on the royalties that you want and stuff like that. And if you're, and, and they'll even print a hard, uh, like a hard copy version, like a paperback. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, you know, that's, that's my other question. Like you mentioned, like the Martian, there's a famous story of like 50 shades to, of gray and stuff. Like there are these self-published books that become big hits. Um, I've had self-published authors on here talking about that business. Some of them are making their six figures a year, just self-publishing and they're doing yeah. all their marketing and everything. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you talk about both, both avenues, publishing, right. self-publishing. So I, I guess, you know, that's one of my last questions for you. Like, what do you, what do you think? Like, what, what would you tell somebody? What? Okay. Tell me, Jay, what would you tell me? I'm torn. Should I continue self-publishing, <laughs> which I've seen some success with, or should I go through the hassle of finding an agent, writing a, however many page long, like pitch of my book and outlines, all that stuff. Like it seems like so much work, but I could just right. write it and I have a social media following and all that. I could just market it. So what do you think? Well, earlier you mentioned how it seemed like such a headache to have to, you know, go through this process of finding an agent and, you know, there's this rigmarole or the hoops you have to jump through, et cetera. And some people look at the self-publishing process and have the same headache. They're like, I, you know, I don't even know the first thing about publishing. I don't know how to find a good editor. I don't know how to get a cover designer. I'm confused mm. and intimidated by copyright and ISBNs and barcodes and what is print on demand again. Yeah. Um, other people look at that and they're like, it's no, no big deal. Um, just slap it up and you're off you go. So there's a lot of personal personality, personal skill level, personal comfort level that plays into this decision. I would say for self-publishing authors who are successful, they're very comfortable typically with writing and publishing as a business and also usually writing in a particular market. I'm not going to say write to market, but they understand their readership. They're interested in serving a readership. You know, they don't have this whole arty thing on going on where I don't care about readers. That's what it means to be an artist. You know, <laughs> yeah. those people are out there and they probably shouldn't be self-publishing. Yeah. Um, right now, and this could change, the most successful self-published authors write genre fiction. They write in a series and they sell predominantly eBooks priced between 99 cents and like $6.99 at the very upper end. Yes, they sell print, um, but usually it's digital books that sell the lion's share. And many people are enrolled in Kindle Unlimited, 
which is the subscription program that Amazon offers and all you can read subscription program. And so if your books are in that program, you get paid based on the pages that are read. So it's a consumption model. And it doesn't quite equate to a sale if someone reads the entire book, although it depends on what you're pricing. You might get two bucks for a full read through on Kindle Unlimited if the book is on the longer side. So some people, you, you know, when they see kind of the power that Amazon wields in this environment, as far as, you know, they hold your readers or customers, you don't have access to who those people are, unless you can get them on an email list, for example. Um, and also there's this issue where often you have to advertise on Amazon to keep your book visible, even if it's doing reasonably well. That didn't used to be the case, but Amazon is making a lot of money these days on advertising. Yeah. So there is that drawback, and some people are very uncomfortable with having to learn these advertising systems. Um, sometimes it requires advertising on Facebook. This happens to romance authors because of it's tough to advertise romance on Amazon, some types of romance. Um, anyway, once you start layering these considerations on top of one another, some people feel like self-publishing is too much work or it's too complicated or it's an ever-moving target what will succeed and people may not have the discipline to kind of roll with the changes be very kind of to test their ads to test what works to think about the timing of their launches to release in a way that's strategic for sales there's something called rapid release which i won't get into but yeah. that a lot of self-published authors use to ensure that their work is staying top of mind for people visible in the Amazon marketplace. Um, so those, I'll, I'll pause there because I could just go on and on. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like an unreasonable challenge. It's not. Yeah. But when you're at the very beginning of that learning curve, you know, I try to tell people you can't, if you want to get into this seriously, you can't just throw in the towel after one book. You've got to say, hey, I'm going to commit to this for three, four or five titles. Um, and do a lot of experimenting and see what works before I decide whether it's for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that's something I often take for granted because I've, I've worked in, uh, you know, search engine optimization, content marketing, regular marketing. <laughs> like I know about advertising, all these other things. I take that for granted. And then I, I rarely think of the author who has no idea. Like right. they just, they just yeah. write. But yeah. I guess, you know, yeah. like you mentioned, you know, fiction performs very well. And that's something I've noticed and I'm a nonfiction writer. So that's, I, that's where I'm like, well, you know, maybe Chris, just try it. Just try it with a publisher once, see how that works. Because yeah, nonfiction self-publishing is a whole different ball game because like you said, like series perform very well in fiction right. series. Um, I, that's where I see a lot of uh, self-published authors like really succeed. So something I might do, maybe that'll be my 2022 goal It's just test out the traditional publishing, see how I like it, see if it's a big pain, all that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but Jane, you are amazing. And, and yeah, I, I loved your book so much. I think I told you, I read it again recently when I was like, Hey, I'm going to start working on my next book. I read it again. I loved it. So for everybody, uh, who wants to follow you and find you and your work, where's the best place to find you and are you working on anything new cool you got another book for me to read coming out soon <laughs> uh the best place to go is janefriedman.com that's the hub for everything that i do the classes the newsletters the blog etc so go there and as far as new projects i am 
I am contemplating, it's not committed yet, Ooh. but I am contemplating a new edition of the business of being a writer because it's now, you know, at this year, it's going to be about four years since it released. And it's, there's a lot of things that I want to update. And I think the self-publishing section deserves a significant expansion. It kind of, it, I won't say it got short shrift necessarily, but I was writing to an MFA audience that I assumed probably wouldn't be that committed to self-publishing. But a lot of people ended up reading that book who have nothing to do with the MFA community. So I mm -hmm. need to kind of beef up that section. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing. You could update that book every year with how much yeah, <laughs> no kidding. and all that. But but Jane, again, I'm so glad we were finally able to link up. So thank you so much for coming on. And maybe if you decide to do the updated version, maybe we could do this again sometime. Absolutely. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jane. You thought you thought I was just overhyping her. You thought that she wasn't just one of the most knowledgeable women or people rather on earth about publishing and being a writer well well you were wrong i was right because she is phenomenal <laughs> but yeah make sure you head down to the description follow jane grab a copy of her book she's constantly just putting out you know content like helping writers and and letting you know like what the business is all about and she also does like you know little courses and classes and things like that online uh you know people like her definitely inspire and motivate me because of just like the motivation, passion and drive that they have, you know? So I, I really love her work and everything that she's doing and make sure you head down in the description again, follow her, grab a copy of the book. All right. But before I let you go, uh, another person you should be following is yours truly. All right. Down in the description, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. And don't forget, head over to the rewired soul YouTube channel. I'm uploading a bunch of episodes. I might, I might even start doing two episodes a day. I was just thinking about that while I was recording and editing this. So maybe I'll do two episodes a day just because I have like dozens, dozens of episodes that I need to upload to YouTube. So maybe I'll do that. Um, because uh, one thing I forgot to mention in the intro, those of you who don't know, uh, I got a new job and it doesn't start until the beginning of March. So I'm not sure what the podcast schedule is uh, going to be like yet. Uh, so I've been recording like crazy during the month of february and uh and still uh lining up a lot more guests to fill up the month but yeah uh if you're following me on social media uh you'll uh get all the updates about what the new podcast schedule will be like and all that but don't worry should should still be able to have at least one episode a week okay but a couple ways to support the podcast first first two ways that are absolutely free uh head over to apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review greatly appreciated i love when you guys do that the algorithm loves when you do that it helps reach more people second thing share these episodes if you are part of an author community author group uh share this episode all right maybe they'll uh find some value in this conversation they'll go check out jane's book but any conversations we have if you share them on social media really helps out a lot reach new people algorithms also pay attention to all that stuff all right other ways to help support the podcast, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. As I mentioned, I have self-published some books, mental health, addiction recovery, my experience being canceled. Uh, a lot of you have actually grabbed a copy of that book um, after my recent article about uh, the pattern of cancel culture in relation to uh, Joe Rogan. So that book's available on the rewiredsoul.com. Another way to help support the podcast is become a paid Substack subscriber, $5 a month or $50 for the year. 
and you get all of the regular episodes a day early. And lastly, lastly, uh, mental health is a huge, huge, huge part of my life. And down below, there is an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I've personally used their service, uh, service. It helped me out a lot when I was canceled and it helps me just maintain my mental health, get an outside perspective, because sometimes you don't really get the right stuff you need from someone who's like really close to you. And, and plus, you know, therapists go to school for this stuff. But, you know, I was just, uh, you know, talking with somebody on Twitter about, you know, how difficult it is to find a new therapist. And one thing that I do love about BetterHelp, if you don't like your therapist, like when I first started using it, wasn't a fan of my therapist, you literally click one button, boom, you find a new therapist. So it's super easy, super convenient. So if you're interested in that, head down to the description, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right. But anyways, another huge thanks to Jane uh, for coming on. Make sure you follow her and grab a copy of her book. And I should have another episode for you later this week. All right. So stay tuned for that. But other than that, have an amazing rest of your day and I will see you next time. Thank you.